All right, everybody, welcome to the first edition of our new uh, vodcast at the Center for Rural Criminology uh, titled Issues in Rural Crime and Society. Today is our inaugural guest. We have none other than Dr. Alistair Harkness. Uh, Dr. Alistair Harkness, uh, Alistair from here on out for sake of ease, is a world-renowned, I would say, rural criminologist uh, specializing in farm crime and farm crime prevention. Um, so Alistair, before I get too carried away. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, g'day, Cole, and uh, welcome to the first podcast, everybody. Uh, my name's Alistair Harkness. I'm a, uh, a rural criminologist. Uh, I've uh, uh, now working within the Centre for Rural Criminology at the University of New England in Armidale, New South Wales. Previously, I worked at a regional Victorian university for 10 years, uh, and that's where I developed a, a very strong interest in rural crime generally farm crime specifically, and a whole array of different issues around policing and crime prevention, and generally making rural communities safer. Perfect. Fantastic. Thanks for that intro. Now, we're going to keep it pretty informal and loose and just have a conversation about your work, uh, your expertise, and I guess farm crime generally. Uh, so we can just bounce back and forth, whatever's convenient. But I thought I'd start off with some broad concepts in, in rural criminology, and particularly that notion of the rural idyll. Um, and if you can talk a little bit about that in the context of rurality and crime to get us started. Sure. Uh, for hundreds of years, we've developed a, uh, an understanding of crime as being very much an urban phenomenon. And this really came, uh, came about historically from the Industrial Revolution and this mass movement of people from agrarian uh, economic conditions, working the land, to uh, their labour being required to support the, the growing cities, the industrial boom, all the factories which were developing, particularly up um, in Europe, uh, in North America as well. And from that point, uh, we saw uh, a sense of disorganisation in the city streets, the great unwashed, the masses. We didn't have things like uh, Centrelink and uh, welfare safety nets, and crime uh, was a significant issue. And I think perhaps from that time onwards, we've seen um, crime through the, an urban lens. And what has developed, therefore, is this notion that non-urban spaces are safe. They're idyllic, they're crime-free. People go there for holidays. People go there for rest and relaxation from the cities and don't necessarily um, uh, come across the crime, which we know happens all the time. Rural spaces are not crime-free. The challenge here has been this uh, focus uh, away from rural spaces and very much in urban contexts. Yeah, thanks. Can we just go back to that concept of, uh, uh, I'm, it's beaten uh, like a dead horse in criminology, but if we can contextualize it within rural crime of social disorganization and social organization, and maybe reflect a little bit on what you were talking about there between kind of that, you know, uh, Jemine shaft, Jashel shaft, that ag agrarian past uh, to this uh, counter uh, um, industrial era of, of uh, disorganization. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays into at least theoretical understandings of uh, rural crime? Yes. Um, rural criminology in itself is a, is a fairly uh, recent uh, sub-discipline of criminology more generally, but taking into account a whole array of different factors which happen in rural communities. And I think here in, it's very important to note that there is nothing homogenous about uh, the rural, if you like. There is no um, uh, set standard definition of a rural space. 
there are different uh, agricultural uh, areas of focus in, in different rural spaces. Some rural areas have no agricultural background either. Uh, tourism might be the main, the main draw card and thinking particularly around some coastal, uh, remote coastal communities around the country, around the world in fact as well. Uh, we, we also see there are an, a number of different examples whereby some communities are less organised, if you like, socially. And I'm thinking particularly around some of those um, uh, perhaps centres focused on mining, where there is large proportions of fly-in, fly-out workers. And one of our colleagues in, in uh, Canada, he works in the, the prairie counties in, um, in Saskatchewan and, and, uh, and around uh, the, that central part of Canada. And uh, Rick Ruddle is his name. And he does a lot of work on the oil and gas um, sector. And what happens in those communities, the boom bust communities where a small community, which might've hitherto had a population of two, three, 400 people suddenly has a population of 20,000. This enormous pressure, which is placed on, on law enforcement, other social services, but also because people don't have that sense of, um, uh, sense of purpose or sense of ownership of that local community. So perhaps anything goes. Compare that and contrast that with uh, rural communities, rural townships, even villages, are, are, you know, both here in Australia and elsewhere, where it's the same families have been there for multiple generations. Everybody knows one another. Everybody looks out for one another. Mm. So you've got this, uh, this real... Um, diversity in uh, in rural spaces too yeah again key components of social disorganization theory that is you know people that aren't uh, staples of the community people that don't stick around right uh, uh, people moving from place to place being more transient and the inability to i guess create community and and what are the implications of that on crime uh, are very interesting but on the other hand as we know uh, there's been a lot of critique of this social disorganization theory in the rural um, i know this isn't specifically your area of expertise we'll get into farm crime in a second but if we could just talk about a little bit this notion of social organization in the rural and how um, strong social bonds um, and strong communities can actually facilitate crime um, um, in contrast to what we constantly hear of in, in criminology of social disorganization uh, leading to crime. Well, yeah, yeah. and sometimes that, that, that familiarity uh, in a local community can be a, uh, an inhibitor uh, uh, when um, and thinking in a farming context where a farmer might not want to report a neighbour who he or she knows is responsible for offending behaviour, stealing sheep, um, mixing them in with their own, their own, uh, their own flock, um, slaughtering them to put in their own freezer. And the, uh, the, uh, the victim actually knows the offender but doesn't want, to, uh, uh, doesn't want to report that, doesn't want to create waves. There is less uh, formal mechanisms for dealing with that, whether it's... Um, through snubbing the, uh, the offender at the pub, um, bad-mouthing them locally, but certainly not involving the police. Because as uh, some farmers have told me anecdotally, I have to live next door to them. Mm. I have to live next door to them. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to create more problems. Yeah. So there is that, there is that, that, uh, that issue where familiarity can be a problem. But on the flip side as well, you've got, um, you've got a, a much greater sense in, in those established, well-connected communities of... Um, of capable guardianship, mm. where people will be looking out for one another. I mean, the forms of communication are a little bit different. I was in, um, in Warrnambool a couple of years ago, or just outside of Warrnambool in a little place called Garvok, and it's a dairy, um, dairy country. And uh, the form of communication is either on a Saturday night at the local uh, footy club, 
or it's uh, winding down the window when you see uh, your neighbour coming towards mm. you in their, in their ute. And those, those dialogues that happen informally in the street as the two cars are side by side or down at the footy club, very less formalised. And even when it comes to dealing with, um, uh, with police, there are a number of uh, examples that uh, police have, uh, have shared with me in the past where uh, the police, the, the, the police uh, station is located next door to the, uh, the police sergeant's residence. So they're, they're side by side in these smaller country, country places. They lock up the police station at five o'clock having not had a single person come through the door and uh, two minutes after they've walked out of the, uh, the police station uh, path and up their own driveway and got themselves in, kicked off the shoes, knocked the top off a frothy, and suddenly there's a queue of people at the door. Just wanted to let you know informally, blah, blah. Yeah. And <laughs> it said, it said, but we haven't reported to the police if you've gone to the house. But if you mm. went next door to the police station, then that's formalised. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. There, is that, uh, there are those, that, those interesting dynamics within, um, within many rural communities. Yeah. And I think that's why we talk about rurals as a plural, right? And, mm-hmm. and specifically how, you know, different communities and areas are going to have their own criminogenic environment that are shaped by, you know, more local factors. And I guess when we're looking at rural crime and rural criminology, it's just really exploring how aspects of locational context or, you know, local cultural geography would shape patterns of crime more generally. And then you've got the sort of the the hinterland or the, 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 the borders, the peripheries between rural and urban. I think you've coined the phrase, uh, the urban, the, the, urban, the yeah, rural yeah. and the urban. And some of those, as the cities spread, population, uh, population growth is occurring and the constant ever, ever spreading of our cities um, and the, the changing in dynamics between uh, what were hitherto quite, perhaps quite isolated rural settings, sort of almost becoming part of the, the met- metropolis yeah, the urban sprawl. Yeah, yeah the yeah. urban sprawl. And for many of the people who live in there, it's, uh, it's jarring and jolting and, uh, and some of that disorganisation which occurs. We've always done it this way and other people come and say, well, mm. it's not happening that way with us. So there's a, almost a clash of cultures. Yeah, that, there'd be that um, element a, of, um, I guess what Carrington and Hogg and others have talked about in the past, that is crime in rural communities being very much seen as the product of others or outsiders, you know, as opposed to and overlooking more internal offenses and things like that. Yeah. And then, and then you've got another whole category and that's the, the uh, exceptionally remote communities where uh, a visit to the police station or the court requires a, uh, a 400 kilometer drive each way or a plane ride. Um, yeah, so this is exactly what we're talking about when, when we mean locational context and cultural geography. And I know we had that uh, great access to justice panel with the ISSRC um, speaking about how you know, access to justice is inhibited in rural communities by various ways. But I haven't seen it in my own research in terms of um, access to uh, drug and alcohol treatment and things like that and how that's very much shaped by the dynamics of the rural, not least the actual accessibility and availability of these types of services, but even the social norms around accessing that type of service and the um, you know, associated shame that would come along with you know, kind of everyone knowing your business when you access um, um, these types of uh, services. Yeah, and there's, a, there's probably a couple of good examples to, to draw people's attention to here. One of them came from some work that um, uh, George and Harris did, looking at, um, at access to legal services uh, for uh, victims and survivors of, uh, of family violence in, in rural and regional Victoria. And one of those issues around some of the courthouses, just the sort of the physical infrastructure or lack thereof, um, 
provide some inhibiting factors. So in mm. some communities, the courthouse might be uh, directly opposite the local supermarket, the IGA supermarket. And when an announcement's put over the, the PA to call mm. the next uh, case, everybody in the supermarket knows that Mrs. Jones is, uh, is going to court sue at up for something. half past 10. Yeah. And suddenly it's everybody's business. Some of those old courthouses and police stations don't have separate meeting spaces. So yeah. you're dealing with um, quite um, traumatic matters over the front counter while somebody else is waiting to get um, a gun license signed. So that's yeah, one example. Yeah. And perhaps another example comes from um, uh, Jonathan Hunya, who wrote a small contribution to a, to a book published back in 2016 called Locating Crime in Context and Place. And he talks about it's your book uh, with, yeah, with uh, uh, Dr. Bridget Harris, and, uh, yeah. Bridget Harris and David Baker and, Dave Baker, yeah. and uh, published by the Federation Press. And, uh, uh, and, and the example that he provides from the, the, the top end up in uh, the, the, the top of nor um, the Northern Territory um, is uh, the legal aid solicitor uh, flying in uh, from Darwin or Alice Springs uh, to this small settlement. And the meeting yeah. happening under the tree because it's the only cool spot, the only private spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, so, that article very well. Yeah, so it's really quite different. And I mean, that's just Australian context. I know that um, Danielle Watson, who's now at the Queensland University mm. of Technology, does a lot of stuff around Pacific criminology, I think is how she frames it. So the multitude of differences and different dynamics in, in places uh, in the South Pacific or in the mm. Caribbean and, uh, and the way that justice is is delivered, is perceived, uh, and the impacts of uh, colonial influences as well. Mm. It's, a, it's sort of a, a real melting pot of different styles and forms of justice. And that in itself is a, is a markedly different um, um, you know, consideration. Let's move into um, talking a little bit about farm crime. Um, maybe we can start a little bit with the importance of agriculture um, in Australia generally, and then shift into, um, I guess, let's consider that the, the, the viewers of this um, have a very basic knowledge of farm crime. So let's unpack farm crime a little bit, okay. uh, you know, what it looks like and maybe some, some statistics around uh, some of the major issues. Okay. Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to underscore the, high level importance that agriculture has to the national economy. It's worth in the order of $60 billion uh, a year to our gross um, domestic product. So it's a significant um, uh, part of the economy. And it's a significant driver of lots of local economies too. And the, the reason for highlighting this is because when farms are offended against, it not only has a, uh, a social impact on those, those people who have been victimised, but it also has a significant impact on, on local economies uh, and state economies and, and the national economy too. And that's because once, uh, if a farmer loses their, uh, their $500,000 wheat header right in the middle of uh, harvest time, it's not as though they can go down to uh, AAMI or Hertz or, uh, or um, so their insurer and, uh, and organise for a replacement one from a, a rental company. Everybody in the local neighbourhood is going to be using theirs as well. And so uh, they might not have a, a very productive year that year because they have, been, they have been a victim of that particular crime. So there's a localised impact on them and their local communities and, you know, uh, an impact more nationally. So it's significant. Uh, and the, the social impacts as well are, are vital to, uh, to highlight and underscore too. 
you know, farms are businesses, farms are also places of residence. And there are those issues around uh, not only the fear, but also the perceptions of, um, of crime, which will have a detrimental social impact in local communities and perhaps a mental health one too for many people. That's often brought up by um, a state rural crime coordinator of the New South Wales police here is that psychological impact as well. So yeah, not only are farms oftentimes residences, as we know from, from uh, um, the farm crime surveys, um, but just being kind of out and isolated uh, oftentimes, you know, with no neighbors by, and then that, 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 you know, extra level of fear, you know, help might be uh, quite far away. However realistic this is, you know, in terms of reality, in terms of actually being physically assaulted or offended against or something like that, it's the kind of context that creates an extra layer of, um, of fear. I remember talking with uh, actually one of my colleagues who owns a farm and, you know, they, they were saying, oh yeah, we had to, some people um, peeking around the shed last night, you know, they saw lights and stuff like that. And something as simple as that, they kind of took off when the porch lights came on, but you know, then you, it's just in your mind, it's in the back of your head. Who was there? Why were they there? Were they staking something out? Oh, I should go check the locks. Did they take anything? Ah, oh, you know, which tools I got to go through all my tools, make sure nothing's missing things like that. And it's just that, that extra level of paranoia, I guess, or fear compounded on you know life which has not been particularly easy for farmers of late with uh, drought bushfires and whatnot so um yeah i think it's good that we highlight that kind of psychological impact of these types of offenses as well yeah. and uh and knowing that the, the nearest neighbor uh, might be a kilometer and a half away and the nearest police officer might be three quarters of an hour drive away uh, and that that adds that level of consternation yeah, yeah um, I, I, exactly. I, I suspect that we'll get to this uh, in a little while, but that uh, also underscores the importance of that uh, that sense of guardianship, people looking mm. out for one another. Having highly connected uh, communities uh, is a is a vital crime prevention measure in itself. Yeah, so let's touch on farm crime first. I do want to get into that because. Crime prevention is obviously um, um, overwhelmingly urban oriented. Um, it's very theoretical basis in a lot of the, you know, kind of Jane Jacobs old eyes on the streets kind of thing. Um, so we have to look at how we apply uh, um, what is often very much built for the urban to the rural. Um, but first, let's go back to farm crime. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is? What are the major offenses? Uh, what are some of their impacts? Uh, um, not only in terms of economically and socially, but can you give us a little bit of a quantitative yeah. picture of these offences? Okay. So, I mean, rural crime has some particular, uh, there are some particular features of, of rural crime, but we just need to highlight again or reinforce that notion that crime happens everywhere, regardless of, of place or space. So there will be uh, acts of violence, which will happen in rural communities, just as they do in urban ones. There will be uh, theft of motor vehicles, uh, in urban communities and rural communities alike. I guess the point of difference is, and I, I'm particularly focused on, on property theft as opposed to, um, to violence against the person. So I'll focus on that. Um, there are obviously particular types of uh, items in rural communities which are, which are a focus. Livestock, for instance, um, farm machinery, uh, firearms, uh, a whole array of different types of items uh, which will be targeted or opportunistically uh, stolen in rural communities, which are not in, not in urban ones. But the processes, the, the psychological processes that an offender goes through will be the same. Am I likely to be caught? And what's the risk? Am I able to offload the stuff? 
do I have the knowledge to, um, to do the offending? So there's a whole suite of, um, in an urban context, there's been a whole suite of uh, research undertaken um, around residential burglaries and, and the sort of the, uh, the subconscious psychological decision-making mm. that an offender will do. If I was to go into this house, is there a way that I can get out if somebody comes in through the front door? If I leg it down the street, am I going to find a brick wall? So there's all of these micro decision makings that happen. And so too on a, on a farm environment. I guess some of the differences here are um, uh, the, the distance between properties, uh, which, are, which are much greater in a, in a rural setting and particularly in farm, farm settings where you know, one property might be um, you know, several kilometres from the next. You know, paddock after paddock before you, uh, you get to another house or another, uh, another farmhouse, uh, some significant distance from local communities. Uh, so that's a significant difference. Um, you know, the level of resourcing in, in, in local communities in terms of, uh, of, of police and other justice services are much sparser. So there's a, there's a whole array of uh, sort of geographic uh, issues which can contribute to farm crime. Right, paddocks that are not fenced. There's no, um, you know, there's less likelihood of there being an abundance of publicly provided CCTV cameras in 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 public areas. There's no there's no justification for for that. So, a degree of uh, lower levels of of security in those uh, those urban uh, in those rural communities is a significant factor. Yeah. So I guess what you're talking about here is really rational choice, risk reward, and you know, in for, for stock theft, uh, I always say, um, you know, it's about $2,000 or more walking around on four legs and not too many people to see you do the job, you know? Uh, yeah. So the, the reward's quite high, the risk being quite low. Um, time before you're caught, probably quite substantial, you know, a variety of, of things in favor of making that decision should one so choose um, um, to steal the, the, the cattle. What I do find really interesting though, is you raising, um, obviously there's a, a million decisions that kind of come into these uh, above risk award or that make that risk reward um, um, that go into the actual calculation of that risk reward, of course. But one of them you raised, which uh, uh, brings me a little bit of a, a laugh is uh, having the skill to do the job. Oh, so yeah. the, the New South Wales police have shown me a, a CCTV footage of these um, four guys um, in, a, in a big uh, truck trying to load up cattle and the CCTV footage is then for about an hour just trying to reverse, you know, and then one of the guys gets out and you can see him get all frustrated. So they switch drivers and this next driver tries to reverse and it takes them a good bit of time. So at least they're up in the risk that way because they don't have the skill to obviously do this. Now they got away with uh, um, a bunch of the cattle, but again, the, the fact that a CCTV was there cause it was at a cattle yard, oftentimes the CCTV wouldn't be there. They were able to re recover the cattle the next day, but uh, it's just, it's just funny. It brought back to my mind, just the, they clearly didn't have the skill to do the job because this wasn't their primary uh, work. You know, they, yeah, they did not drive they, big trucks. Yeah. In many of these instances, there has to be a, uh, a reasonably high degree of, of acquired knowledge. I went out to a farm in Seymour a number of years ago, Seymour's sort of, um, up the just off the Hume Highway between uh, Melbourne and Sydney, and uh, uh, went to a farm there. And he's running um, several hundred head of cattle. He's got a thousand sheep, and he took us out to a paddock and just showed us how easy it is to peel off twenty sheep from um, uh, two hundred. So he sends his dog in there, 
Mm. Um, imagining that there was a horse float or a, or a tan trailer or something just up on the roadside. Within 60 seconds, he's managed to uh, whistle the dog, peel off 20, have them in a straight line, and you can just imagine that they were heading up into a thing and the, uh, the offender would be away. Mm. Uh, some offenders are able to signal their dogs by moonlight, by hand signals, not even whistles. So being able to be quite stealth, uh, stealth-like in the uh, in the offending behaviour, they're not skills that somebody who has never never been to the country would have. First of all, you need the working dog. Secondly, you need to know how to how to how to work the dog, and uh, and there's also uh, the, not only the the acts of committing the offence, but also the disposing of the stolen goods. Unless you unless you're stealing the livestock for your own freezer, um, you're wanting to sell them on, or you're wanting to sell the material on to get the you know get the cash recompense for your for your offending so you need to also have those abilities to to uh to fence the items too mm. yeah yeah that's 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 quite interesting also uh, some aspect of cultural knowledge in that regard of uh, how these things work um from driving a truck to uh running a working dog yeah i mean the instances as well where um uh, out in the the western districts of victoria where um you know, at harvest time, relying upon a lot of uh, imported labour, so people to come in and do, um, you know, operate the machinery. Um, you know, um, uh, truck drivers to come in and take the uh, take the the wheat to a silo. Anyway, a bloke, a farmer, they'd done all the harvesting, loaded up his own silos. Uh, on the Friday, you know, he had the truck trucks coming in and out all week. Gets to the uh, the Friday night and packs up for the effectively for the weekend. Job done comes along on Monday and all the silos had been emptied out. It was the, the contracted um, yeah. um, truck, truck driver knew that uh, he'd have a market for it up in New South Wales or Queensland and uh, yeah. just came in when he wasn't going to be observed, took truckload, truckload of wheat out of there and presumably unsalted it at some discounted rate. So, yeah. um, I, you know, uh, would I know how to uh, A, drive a truck or B, um, mm. uh, sell a truckload of, of, of harvested wheat no but mm. other people do and and that's the uh, that's the issue yeah very interesting um maybe we can contextualize a little bit from previous farm crime research uh, of course elaine barclay's work is you know groundbreaking in that regard getting uh, data on on farm crime uh your own research out of victoria and our own uh, um, recently launched through the center for rural criminology the new south wales farm crime survey 2020 but there's some pretty consistent findings across that and i wonder if you might before we get into issues around reporting farm crime so we, we've explored why farms are vulnerable that kind of of risk reward, uh, absence of crime prevention tools and these types of things. But can you tell me a little bit more about farm crime in terms of, for instance, victimization rates and then moving into the issue of reporting? Yeah, well, I mean, the two are very much, uh, uh, are very much linked. And, and one of the, uh, we have to set this in the context of the dark figure of crime. You know, mm -hmm. there's a significant amount of crime which happens but goes unreported and unrecorded. So the crime's still happening, but it's not, because it, by virtue of it not being reported, it's not ending up in the official statistics. This in this in um, creates a whole set of uh, ongoing issues too. Not least of all that decision makers, um, uh, you know, political and departmental, might not, uh, and in terms of law enforcement and other agencies, uh, might just be looking at the crime statistics, think that everything's reasonably rosy, and uh, and it's not something to uh, to uh, direct resources towards. So that's that's one one output, but it also means that if you know 
for every crime that goes unreported, there's an offender who's getting away with their offending behavior too. Mm. And we know from a, a vast bulk of research that, um, that offenders will keep on going back to the same, the same spot as long as they think that they can get away with it. And, uh, and there's, um, uh, I'll, 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 it'll have to come back to my mind, but there was a, there's a particular, a particular uh, theoretical notion that um, comes about from, um, you know, the animal, the animal kingdom and where animals will go and forage for, mm. so optimal foraging is what it's called. And okay. you know, once you find a food source, you'll keep on going back to the food source as long as it's there. Um, yeah. Perhaps to underscore this with a, uh, with an anecdote that, uh, that was provided to me from uh, a couple of police officers out in the, again, the Western districts out in Horsham a number of years ago. An old cocky comes into the uh, into the police station and uh, says, "Oh, you know what? I just need to report a whole heap of stuff's been stolen out of my shed." Says it. They go out there and said, "Um, had you locked your shed?" Said, "No, never locked my shed. Never needed to. Never had anything stolen from it." Said, "Well, you want to lock your shed because there's a very high likelihood that the offender or offenders are going to come back and they'll do you over again. They already know. They know what they weren't able to take." They know what's there. They'll have already made a little inventory in their own minds about what they're going to target next. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, comes in the next day. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. You know, stuff's been knocked off again. I said, well, we do believe it because we told you yesterday this is exactly what was going to happen. A couple of yeah. days go by. So they reinforce the message. You need to lock your stuff up because they, they could come back a third time. There's a repeat victimization is a, is a thing, you know. Um, you know, take our word for it. So a couple of days go by, he comes in, comes in later in the week, three or four days later, says, ah, they've done me again. I said, oh, what happened? I said, I took your advice. I locked up my stuff for a couple of days. Nothing got stolen. So I thought, oh, well, <laughs> that's all good. And he got, got hit, a, hit again. So, yeah. Oh, you know, so I, can, I can empathize with that a little bit. Um, a little anecdote of my own, a more personal one is, I guess I grew up in an area um, where we didn't lock our doors at all. So, I mean, you know, I never lock my car, you know, my parents usually had the door open even when we we're gone for school, stuff like that. And then as I've gotten older and lived in Europe for a few years in different countries around there, I maintained that kind of local behavior. Mm. And I, you know, in, when I lived in London, I, I just didn't lock my doors just because I don't know, it really went against my trust. I felt like I was betraying others trust. You know what I mean? I was, I was suggesting that people might steal, which is obviously very naive, especially for someone who teaches crime prevention now. But, um, and of course I had my sunglasses knocked off in London as well as my cell phone. And, you know, now I lock my doors. Um, now that we're at Armadale, I keep them open a little bit more, but, um, the opposite of that is my partner who grew up in the Netherlands and the Netherlands has a particularly low crime rate, of course, but they have a rather high rate of petty theft and particularly uh, breaking into different cars, even breaking the houses and stuff like that. And so she is adamant about locking everything constantly. And it's just uh, an interesting anecdote that makes me reflect on how, how culture, uh, particularly locational context and cultural knowledge really shapes your your crime prevention behaviors and in this case obviously you know the farmer didn't want to lock his door simply because it's just not how things are done yeah yeah um the 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 point is that uh we are now in 2020 and uh so much has changed even the the access and egress from rural communities is so much easier now than it has been in the past we've got double lane highways at 100 110 kilometers an hour we've got faster rail services to um to regional cities you know 
we are making it much easier for people to get in and out of rural areas. So there's that, that sort of um, the, the graying of, the, of the, the, the peripheries, if you like, between rural and urban. Uh, so metropolitan offenders can get to a rural, rural area and out again reasonably quickly, probably unnoticed, and can be selling their uh, stolen items uh, on a market in a metropolitan setting several hours later. And a good example of this is the, um, is the targeted theft of uh, long arms. So shotguns, 22 rifles, mm. and so on. Since the, uh, the significant changes to gun laws in 1996 by the newly elected Howard government, um, immediately following the horrific uh, massacre at Port Arthur, enormous changes to our gun laws. It's become uh, much, uh, much more difficult to acquire, um, you know, semi-automatic firearms, you know, other other illegal firearms. That both the legislative change and also much greater border security uh, make it uh, difficult. So offenders will look for well, what is the next option? Farms will always have firearms because they're a tool of the trade. They're essential for uh, euthanizing uh, livestock, mm. uh, dealing with vermin, a whole range of other, other factors. So they are going to be there. And often as, as much as a, uh, as a farmer uh, abides by the rule of the law and locks the, um, locks the firearms up, follow in the, the correct receptacles and following all requirements, they'll still be targeted mm. because the offenders will know that there's, four, five, six firearms there that are, that are right for the taking. And this is, a, this is a particular issue. And it goes to underscore that, again, that, that merging between rural and urban. So we don't have crime that happens in A and crime that happens in B. You've got this sort of uh, overflow from one geographic space yeah. to another. And those crimes stolen from, uh, those firearms stolen from the farm can then be sawn off and used in, um, in street battles by a wannabe uh, meth dealer showing how um, how important he is, and so on mm. and so forth. And yeah, I remember also used in the in the commission of crimes in urban settings too. The Queensland Police, I think, this year, late last year, raised that as a primary issue. Um, I think what we would call the grey market. That is, yeah. you know, farmers access their their weapons legally um, um, through legal channels, and then the primary uh, market for you know would be offenders is this grey market because yeah. of the difficulties introduced. Um, um, with gun legislation and gun laws. And so, um, yeah, it uh, makes for an interesting scenario of that overlap between that urban-rural crime. I mean, we, we consider these, these things in an Australian context too. We could have a completely different discussion if we're thinking about uh, firearms and rurality in, in say, the United yeah, States. Where, yeah. And again, it also, um, it's also a good example of that difference between the targeted thefts. So those, that example of the firearms being specifically targeted um, uh, versus the opportunistic uh, thefts and the ways that we deal with each uh, might be uh, slightly different. Another example of a targeted theft is if, if you're in Mount Isa and you're in need of a, uh, use the example again of a, of a wheat header, um, you can go down and buy a $500,000 one new, or you can buy a secondhand one from a, a bloke that you know for half the, half the price yeah, yeah. and it'll be stolen to order. Um, compare that with the, Arrest about or somebody else from a local community, you know, seeing something lying and said, "Yeah, I could do with a new chainsaw." You know. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. 
So I guess when we're talking about uh, victimization, I know um, these past surveys have hit it around, you know, victimization rates of in and inching towards 80%. I mean, I know the preliminary stuff out of our uh, farm crime survey is, is well over the 80% mark currently um, of some level of victimization on farm. And as you've pointed out, primarily to do with acquisitive crime or theft, uh, particularly of livestock, as well as trespasses, uh, obviously a significantly high one. But let's move back to, to let's focus on on livestock theft as the example. You know, as 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 uh, Elaine Barclay and others call it, the quintessential rural crime. It's it's our best example here. Can we talk about the issues then that bleed into reporting and the underreporting? You know, why aren't farmers reporting um, these types of offences? Okay, so um, there's a array of different reasons that uh, are often proffered, um, and perhaps we can divide these up into the institutional. Uh, reasons, um, evidence-based uh, reasons, and community-based reasons. So in terms of the institutional reasons, things around police. So not being confident that the police will take the matter seriously. And that, uh, that comes up again and again and again. Uh, a notion that um, you know, the police might not be able to do anything about it, even if it was taken seriously. Um, so some of those institutional issues. Or um, thinking, oh, if I do, if I do report it, um, I might have to go to the court, and a day, a day in court's a day off the farm, and I can't really, um, I can't really uh, take that chance, and the hassles of the legal process as well. And then there's the, all those those different evidence-based reasons. So sometimes, and we'll use livestock as a as another as an example again here. Um, if somebody loses 20, 30, 40 sheep out of four or five hundred, it's not mm. going to be uh, easily noticed. The sheep are only mustered four or five times a year for drenching, shearing, counting. Um, and so several months could go by between the, the offence occurring and the offence being noticed. In the meantime, you know, any chance of there being uh, evidence is long and uh, well and truly gone. Mm. So tire marks gone. Neighbours can't remember. Oh, I, th- I think there might have been a, a red Ford Falcon or it was a grey Commodore. I can't really be 100% sure that was a while ago mate I, I don't mm. know so you don't have that uh, that that evidence and and then, so the, the farmer will um will perhaps well they could have been stolen or they could have been taken by a dog go and check all the fences is there any um yeah any carcasses doing all that sort of stuff but the evidence is well and truly gone and uh uh so evidence is a uh, a significant uh, issue in not reporting and then there's the community-based um uh, reasons that uh, that farmers will indicate that they knew who the offender was. They know it's the next door neighbour. I have to live next door to him. Or it's a fear of revenge. Or they don't want to have the matter end up in the paper mm. uh, or uh, taken up by the media. So an array of different reasons as to why the reporting doesn't happen. Yeah, interesting. So if we focus on that, that, that maybe, I guess we could call it trust issue between the police and between farmers or a confidence issue. Um, and I think it goes two ways, right? The, the, the farmers thought maybe he's reported it before and things didn't go anywhere, you know, or maybe the farmer's smart enough to realize, I don't know when these things went missing, how the police supposed to do anything. Right? And the police are going, there's, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. You know, there's absolutely no evidence on which we could even begin our investigation. We haven't a clue when these things were taken, who might have taken them. Um, And so both parties are kind of left frustrated. And I think the research has shown that this has led to a little bit of a, of a, um, gap between farmers and, and and the police. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that level of frustration, uh, which would, um, 
no doubt mount when uh, a constable comes up the farm, the farm driveway, the farmer says, I've had a couple of Dorper rams stolen. And the police officer doesn't know if that's a, uh, an truck or a, from yeah. America or if it's yeah, something yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. suddenly there's, there's already this gulf between, so what am I dealing with here? You know? Um, and so that level of trust said, oh, I might as well just sort it out myself. Um, I'll, yeah. I'll work it out myself. Uh, and so, and then, and then word spreads around the local community. So, oh, Mr. Plods, yeah, he wasn't really all that helpful to me. Um, one of the things that uh, that I'd noticed in my research, and you might uh, uncover something similar too, is the um, when you introduce police officers into those farm communities who actually have an agricultural background and agricultural knowledge themselves, the levels of trust just you know skyrocket effectively. So yeah. here in Victoria, back in 2011, uh, we had uh, uh, the old uh, stock squad had been long disbanded many, many years previously. But in 2011, uh, was established Agricultural Liaison Officers. They've just recently been renamed as Farm, uh, farm Crime Liaison Officers. Mm. But essentially, it's a group, about 60 officers, uh, mostly general duties detectives, some uniformed um, members as well, who apply for this uh, role. It's just an additional portfolio in their, uh, in their suite of things that they need to look after. But they might have been uh, grown up, grow, they might have grown up on a farm. They might actually be a farmer themselves. They live in farming communities. They might've been around horses all the, all the, uh, all their life. So they have a, they have a knowledge about a specific aspect of farming, but about farming more generally and knowing how, um, how farmers, you know, the pressures that they're under, the things that they have to do mm, yeah. and being able to recognize different types of animals. So, uh, and different types of machinery and equipment as well. So that breaks up got. that, uh, that cultural gap that was there initially anyways, at least. Yeah. So, we, so when, yeah, that's right. And so, and in my survey, I asked, um, I asked farmers if they'd ever had a, uh, an interaction with a agricultural liaison officers that were known up until, you know, six or so months ago. Uh, or you know, partway through last year. And those people who had been a victim of crime and had had an interaction with an agricultural liaison officer mm. had a far higher uh, positive perception of, of police than those who had not had that interaction. Yeah. So it goes to underscore the importance of having a community which is engaged by people who are, uh, who have uh, that degree of empathy and, and knowledge as well. Yeah. If I can just speak to it in, in the New South Wales context, I think the New South Wales police are, are, are years ahead uh, of, of not only in Australia, but uh, um, internationally, they're, they're, they're developing quite a model for rural policing. Obviously they have a long history of it, but with the advent of the rural crime prevention team recently, you know, this is a dedicated rural crime squad, not an additional portfolio, but the dedicated rural crime prevention officers. Um, and so I think that's gone, well, I, actually, I know that's gone a long way to improving uh, these relationships as you've found in your own surveys. In this uh, New South 
Wales Farm Crime Survey 2020, we actually put in an entire section on perceptions of the rural crime prevention team, knowledge of interactions with, and these types of things. And the same findings, you know, even those farmers that have been victimized, they have a much higher perception of police as well as satisfaction more broadly um, than those who haven't had the opportunity to engage with this. And of course, uh, similar to you, I put this down to the fact that um, farmers probably feel like they've at least been heard. You know, someone huh. has come along that understands, you know, has the cultural knowledge, for instance, understands the actual economic loss faced by the farmer, understands those social and psychological impacts uh, that we talked about, you know, where someone not as deeply engaged might think, so what, mate, you know, you lost a couple of sheep, like, who cares, you know, and, and, and that added level of, 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 again, cultural knowledge, but also confidence in the fact that maybe they can actually do something about this, yeah. or they actually are at least trying. At so, least trying, I think, is sometimes half the, half the half battle. Half the battle, isn't it? So, you know, up here uh, last week, we had the, the, the commissioner of police uh, come to the UNE and the Center for Rural Criminology and announce uh, Operation Stock Check, right? So they're, they're showing these types of initiatives. Um, um, well, I think employing these types of initiatives are showing that they actually care about stock theft or at least communicating that to, to the, 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 the farmer. So I think having the, the, um, the commissioner of police come and announce a rural operation and actually come out to uh, uh, regional New South Wales and, um, and announce this himself, as opposed to, you know, for instance, the head of the, the rural crime prevention team, the state crime coordinator there. Um, I think it says a lot. Uh, and I think that's what they want to do as well. And in my conversations with the, the head of the rural crime prevention team, the state rural crime coordinator, he says that's half the battle too. It's, it is about solving crime. And it is actually, sorry, as in their name suggests, it's about preventing rural crime, but it's also about uh, filling that trust gap, you know, and, and repairing those relationships and building on those relationships uh, between uh, rural communities, broadly speaking, and, and the police. Oh, and we can see in, um, and again, in a United States context, when in some communities where that level of trust is completely broken down between the police and the police, de, um, it's chaotic. Yeah. Uh, but we see all of the evidence around trust and confidence in, in police and it's positive impacts on, on crime rates when you do have a highly engaged and connected community. So the police being, you know, the, the Peely and Robert Peel's uh, mm. ambition was for the police to be the people and the people are the place, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and focusing on the prevention of crime rather than necessarily on the enforcement of laws, you know, mm. being a part of, part of communities. And that's, uh, that's fundamentally important. I went to a, an event at the end of last year, which was attended by a number of, um, of uh, rural police officers. And, uh, and they, they talked about, um, you know, going for a walk, the importance of something so simple as rather than going uh, when they're out on patrol, going to the local uh, coffee shop, grabbing a coffee and sitting down and having it in the coffee shop where they're observed by nobody other than the barista, mm. uh, grabbing the coffee as a takeaway and going down to the local footy mm. and walking around the grounds. Mm. People come up and say, they said, not only did it show that they're out and about and they're, they're, they're visible, um, but people come up and say, oh, by the way, did you know this or did you know that? And they said, it's, it's a great form of intelligence gathering as well as yeah, uh, fair enough. community engagement. They wouldn't get that if they just uh, sat down and isolated. Or certainly only only turned up uh, retrospectively to a um, or reactively yeah, to fans, a yeah. um, to a report. 
Funny you say that the, the um, commissioner himself noted that he walked the streets of Armadale and how many people came up to him to just chat with him and shake his hand. None of them knowing that he was the commissioner of police, you know, and uh, he said that uh, I guess engendered a good feeling, the fact that they didn't know who he was and they just wanted to talk to their local officers. Uh, and I'm sure he doesn't get that in Sydney very often. Um, and so it's interesting that dynamic, but I think what we're talking about here, even they're one and the same, not necessarily in terms of uh, uh, going out and solving crime, but this aspect of crime prevention um, and the uh, necessary aspects of it require that, that uh, trusting relationship between the police and the police or between police and, and rural communities. And so by improving that relationship and by focusing on improving that relationship, they are improving the capacity to prevent rural crime as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, the adage prevention is better than cure is, uh, yeah. is, uh, is absolutely uh, important. In America, and, uh, it's an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of a cure. Is it different over here? Is it a kilo of a cure? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. But um, just, uh, just thinking, I've just, uh, I've just pulled up this um, um, Robert Peel. Uh, you know, for those of you who are, who are not fully au fait with, uh, with your, uh, your history of, of modern police. Uh, Sir Robert Peel was the Home Secretary in, in the United Kingdom back in 1829. He also went on to become the, uh, the, prime, the, the, the British Prime Minister too. But when he was the Home Secretary, so the equivalent of our um, um, you know, Police Minister effectively here, or um, the Attorney General perhaps, um, uh, he said that uh, the principal object to be obtained is the prevention of crime to so this great and every effort of the police is to be uh, directed. And mm. also importantly, the ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon the public approval of police actions. So we came up with these, uh, these nine key precepts around what the modern police should, uh, should be about and underscoring that importance that um, crime prevention has to be at the forefront, not a reactive, uh, uh, law enforcement operation necessarily, but one that's getting in there. And that's where these, um, these rural crime teams are doing such a fantastic job. I spent a little bit of, uh, I spent an entire day with uh, a couple of uh, officers up in um, North Wales uh, a number of years ago and, and spent the day uh, going around the community. And uh, not only was it just dropping in and, and visiting people as they, they did their, their rounds and responding to, uh, to calls as well, but engaging with the community through social media. So they knew where all the, um, all the little Wi-Fi hotspots were, pull the car over out the front, engines mm -hmm. idling, send a little, uh, a little tweet out. Um, it, it had a couple of purposes. They, you know, they're demonstrating that they're out and about and they're doing things to law-abiding people, also flags to all the crooks that um, the police are here, there and everywhere. So it just pings in this township, in this township. Um, and it just brings a, me I, back to that, that anecdote I had earlier of that, that, uh, that group of guys that really couldn't back up to steal the cattle. Well, actually, it wasn't the CCTV that got it. The CCTV helped, but the Rural Crime Prevention Team has a, a quite a huge Facebook following. They're, st they're like that as well, just constantly posting, you know, different uh, um, arrests or different things that they're up to and doing, um, notifying people that they're out and about. But in this case, they posted that footage of the CCTV and uh, uh, I've seen it somewhere in, in the presentation that the, the state rural crime coordinator gave, but he shows the screenshot of the, the Facebook thread and someone tags someone and says, care to explain. 
you know, so the police decided to follow up on that and, and sure enough, that uh, uh, led to um, the arrest of the four people involved. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, uh, uh, there are many, um, many different technological ways of engaging with the community too. Uh, mm. I know, um, uh, yeah, again, out in the, uh, in the dairy, dairy farming area in the west of, uh, uh, the southwest of uh, Victoria, a lot of farmers would set up their own um, WhatsApp groups. Yeah. Um, you know, dairy farming doesn't, it's not a huge labor intensive operation. So, you know, a small, small dairy farm with 150, 200, 250 cattle uh, can be dealt with just by uh, one or two people really. So it's a uh, sharing some of the experiences and, and problem solving through mm. uh uh, many different inputs is something crowdsourcing yeah crowdsourcing uh, crime prevention knowledge yeah, and, i don't know and... how to do this or but um so just uh, some of those fundamental basics uh, from a young bloke just starting out as a dairy farmer but it's also i'll just be aware there was a um a white ford transit fan coming yeah. up around my thing never seen it before and they drove off quickly when i went up to approach them just watch out so mm. i mean there is that uh that degree of uh engagement Again, that's, police, that speaks to that well. uh, yeah. social bonds, right? And that, that yeah. social organization and, and, and um, uh, working together uh, um, um, for the purpose of crime prevention. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, I want to move into one aspect. Now, we've covered a few things we're going to go into anyways in terms of, you know, these concepts of capable guardianship and situational crime prevention and really how traditions of of urban-based crime prevention, especially obviously crime prevention through environmental design and things like that, um, and their failure to replicate, of course, obviously in the rural context by proxy, for the most part of just the sheer vast wide open space and and the the you know the importance the central component of many crime prevention uh, um, uh, theories and the basis of them is simply you know eyes on the street and capable guardianship and things like that. Uh, we talked about target hardening and how sometimes it's hard to get uh, farmers to harden those targets uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, again, the space kind of uh, uh, mitigates certain uh, certain types of things uh, being undertaken. But one area that's 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 garnering, uh, I think, opportunities and interest is technology um, and the opportunities to employ technology for the purposes of rural crime prevention. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, yeah, and and uh, I think the, the the first point to make is that sometimes solutions which could um, easily be encouraged in an urban setting will not necessarily translate like logistically difficult. Yeah. So go to a farmer and say, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to put a lock on every gate. So I've got mm -hmm. thirty or forty gates, and if I had a, a padlock on every one of them, and they're all keyed differently. I'm going to have a keychain this big, <laughs> and all I'm going to be Weighing doing me down. is unlocking gates. It's just simply not feasible. Yeah, not practical. Um, yeah, during uh, harvest time, um, they'll uh, take a big trailer of fuel out into the middle of the middle mm -hmm. of a, a paddock. Now, for those of uh, those of you who are listening from perhaps different countries, we have vast expanses of of space here, as you can imagine, and so towing the uh, you know, the, the fuel back to uh, and locking it up in a, in a building each day is just not going to be uh, feasible. So it'll be left out there. That obviously gives an opportunity for, um, you know, thieves to drain the tank, steal it yeah. altogether. So some, but some of the ideas are good in theory, uh, less um, practical though. Yeah. Um, in terms of technology though, technology, you know, you know, 
even over the last 10 years, technologies have come ahead in leaps and bounds. I'm thinking particularly here as an example of, um, of CCTV technology. So whereas a grainy low res uh, camera 15 or 20 years ago would have cost uh, the ends of the earth, uh, they are relatively uh, affordable now. Even mediocre, mediocre quality uh, motion activated cameras you can get from Aldi on a, and a special buy in, yeah. in any yeah. shop around the country, or you can go to, you can get a better, better quality one. And the good thing about this is, and it gets back to one of those points that we we're talking about earlier around um, capturing evidence and, oh, and the, and your example of the, uh, you know, everybody sitting around and watching the truck repeatedly backing up for an hour mm. unsuccessfully, um, that wouldn't have been possible without the, uh, the footage. So it gives the police uh, something to go on, if not everything to go on. And, uh, and you know, there are plenty of applications and, and, can, and farmers can be quite strategic too in their deployment. Yeah. Um, I mean, technology, uh, it's not just, a, I, I was having a chat to some people uh, in the United Kingdom just a couple of days ago who are from Heritage England, actually, talking about heritage, uh, heritage crime. And they've got an awful problem in many rural villages of you know, the church roofs that mm. are, are full of lead being completely ripped off. They, wow. They, uh, the reverend and the parishioners come down on a Sunday morning and there's no roof on the, on the church. It's been knocked off. So uh, they've got some significant issues there. And, and, you know, some of the parishioners who might be looking after the, after this, you know, three, four, 500 year old property uh, in their dotage and uh, wouldn't be able to run, run after a thief anyway. So, you know, yeah. there's a, a whole heap of issues there, but there's talking about uh, uh, technology. There's this, um, I think it's called the, uh, the audible moth. I'll have to, uh, a little bit more research is required, but it's like a, um, a small credit card sized um, device, which has been used in a variety of settings, but of interest to me was uh, it being, a, being used in the Amazon. It's got the ability to be programmed uh, for a particular sound wave. So it's activated and a, and a message will be sent out if it detects a sound that is the sound of a chainsaw. So that very specific sound will activate this, and then people can uh, can go to that uh, you know wow. go to that particular geographic location. And, can it be uh, programmed for different sounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Programmed for different. Oh wow! Different sounds. So, uh, so the sound so, of a big diesel engine pulling up. Yeah, state of the art technology, and and another example is um, you know because a lot of the uh, the lead roofed churches are being targeted. There's never been an audit done of all those churches in England. Uh, so rather than going around each of the, and there's no point using resources, encouraging people to do X, Y, and Z with their local churches about uh, lead theft. If all the churches in a particular area don't have lead roofs or thatched roofs, you know, there's no, there's no point. So um, using state of the art um, uh, satellite uh, camera technology, uh, you know, and people are working on this at the moment to actually detect the proportion of lead that might be in a, in a roof surface. So they can mm. then map that and plot that and then wow. um, develop campaigns accordingly. So there's some really sophisticated cutting edge technological advances that are being made for rural crime, uh, rural crime uh, generally. Yeah. But, but that, that doesn't take away from the fact that for many people, the, the, the technology or the, um, the crime prevention responses can be a bit old school. So mm. looking out for one another, being vigilant, 
um, marking well, property. Well, you, you've brought it up time and time again, and I think this has also come out of the surveys as well. I mean, uh, farmers do see uh, um, as some sort of uh, uh, personal responsibility for crime prevention, which is good and, and necessary by proxy of the environment that we're in, right? The police are not around all the time. They're often quite far away. And the very, very simple crime prevention tools that unfortunately aren't always employed on farms because of the she'll be right mentality that we've spoken about. So a lock, you know, is worth its weight in gold. Putting up signage mm. um, is, is sometimes the, the, the offender is always going to say, mm, it could, the signage that says that there are guard dogs and that there's cameras could be false, but it could be true. Am I going to take my chance or do I go to the place next door or down the street where I think the target is softer? Yeah, and I, I know the police even talk about at the very big, actually they, they had signs made up by um, um, the insurance company, I forget which one was funding the New South Wales Rural Crime Prevention Team, it just simply do no trespass signs. Yes. Yeah. You know, oftentimes people are just trodden through fields, uh, not always with some sinister motive. Uh, they just, you know, a, a, a lack of awareness uh, that they've shifted from public property onto private property. And we see it with farmers. I mean, and the number uh, one, I think, now surpassing stock theft is issues of trespass. And sometimes uh, uh, for malicious reasons, sometimes, uh, well, oftentimes by hunters, or as we've seen um, in the media these past few years with uh, that clash of civilizations between uh, animal activists on the one hand and, and, and working farms on the other. Um, uh, but at other times, just simply tourists, you know, going off the beaten track and things like that. And so the importance of, of uh, what's it called in the literature? Uh, ownership. When you declare ownership of a particular space, right. there's, a, there's a crime prevention word that's uh, escaping my mind right now. Uh, but, the, you know, it's something as simple as that. So, but getting back to technology, the one thing that always kind of struck me when we talked about this, we can introduce CCTVs, as you said, they're cheap and, and, and much easier to access. So it's about trying to instill in farmers um, um, that these opportunities are available, that they're fairly cost effective. But thinking of the quintessential rural crime that is stock theft uh, and this concepts of rational choice that we've talked about, that's kind of one of the hardest points to intervene in that decision-making process because oftentimes stalkers sitting out there in a vast wide open field um, that is usually not an eyesight of the farm. How are you setting up CCTVs in there? There's some capacity for drones and these types of things. But I know you're aware, and I just wanted to bring it up, of these uh, new technologies around smart animal ear tags. Mm. Um, and particularly with that company, Sarah's Tag, that we're going to be doing some research with, with the Rural Crime Prevention Team. And what this introduces finally is uh, various aspects of intervention into stock theft. The first being what you just brought up in terms of uh, introducing signage. So the fact that you have a sign sitting there that says, you know, this, this, uh, uh, a stock is tagged by Sarah's tag, you know, and, and then you're right. Uh, introduces a component of, you know, what is Sarah's tag? It sounds, <laughs> sounds technologically savvy and interesting. Maybe I don't want to steal these stock. The other part is the actual capacity to uh, make farmers aware that their stock are being agitated or being bothered, kind of like that card you spoke about can do. Um, being able to actually track stock, uh, maybe intervening in the theft, but also tracking it to its final destination. I don't know how many times I've talked to the Royal Crime Prevention Team and they've said, you know, one of the problems is if we do recover stock, where did it come from? 
Mm. You know, how is, where does it go back to, you know, and then they're stuck with all, all, all this uh, property, I guess, as it were, and, and, and stock and, and have nowhere to return it to. And so these ear tags, I think, um, and uh, will really be a game changer in, in, in the issue specifically of stock theft. Yes. Yeah. And um, oh, my, my survey, um, I asked, uh, I asked farmers, had they, if they'd, after they'd been victimized, was there, um, were their items uh, returned? 92% didn't get them returned. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, stock is easily disposed of, you know, mobile abattoirs, dig a hole, bury the, uh, bury the, the pelts or the, yeah, all the, all the non meat related parts of the animal. I noticed um, the, uh, the National Farmers Union in the United Kingdom uh, publish an annual report and they've uh, published another one just, uh, uh, just, uh, just recently and at, at the start of August of uh, 2020. And one of the things uh, in the context of the COVID-19 is an increase in the number of, um, of animals, of, of livestock being stolen during these conditions yeah, really well here in a, in a Victorian, in a Victorian context where uh, the state is in a stage four lockdown, mm. a reduction in the processing of, uh, of animals uh, will have a meat supply related uh, issues. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine here, although we don't have any data for this as yet, that there will be a spike in livestock thefts as people are finding alternative sources for, uh, mm. for meat products and yeah. a black market originates. There's a lot of work that Willie Clutt has done in South Africa on, on livestock thefts. Um, and uh, in fact, a, uh, a chapter that he's written, fantastic chapter that he's written for a new book that I've edited called uh, Rural Crime Prevention, Theory, Tactics and Techniques, where he applies um, uh, the 25 situational crime prevention mm. techniques, which were very much designed in an urban uh, framing and applies it specifically with livestock theft. So, you know, a fantastic resource. Um, but there's a whole array of different issues there as well, but, uh, but some, are, some are quite similar. The issues around biosecurity, the issues around having, um, you know, black market uh, meat supplies and health impacts, um, a whole array of different issues. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And even with those ear tags, uh, they're fairly tamper-proof, uh, difficult to get off without doing some damage to the animal. If you're trying to, you know, get back to market, that is actually sell the beast that cause problems. But if you, you know, have mobile abattoir and, you know, or if you're, you're using them for personal or self-consumption, it's not really a barrier, is it? And so if we expand this out to other countries that have different levels of, of uh, oversight on their food markets or food chains, um, and the ease with which um, these types of technologies could simply be bypassed with a, a, a lopping of the old ear. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, livestock will be stolen for different reasons, and, uh, and some will be stolen to mingle in with a, introduced to an existing, uh, existing herd or an existing mob. Um, others might be stolen for breeding purposes, so, you know, a ram, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the purpose is not to destroy that. So some form of technology that uh, is effectively embedded on the, uh, on the animal will uh, be enormously beneficial. And it goes back to that crime prevention 101, that risk reward. Yeah. If you think that uh, there's a, at, at all a likelihood that uh, an animal has been tagged in such a way that it'll be identified while it's on your property and in your possession mm. illegally, um, 
might uh, might be looking for the softer target, the one that yeah, is. Yeah, and and even even if those tags are removable and you don't uh, uh, mean to enter, uh, I guess, the legal market or re-enter the legal market to selling uh, those bees specifically, just the actual process and hassle of having to remove those. Um, I, I've seen them kind of how the difficulty, the level of difficulty is quite significant. And so, you know, if you want to steal, you know, six head of, of cattle or something like that, uh, the time it would take to actually remove these just wouldn't be worth it that you've upped the risk at least right there. You know, the signage has entered, uh, uh, put risk into the mind. The process of having to remove these has, has uh, increased an element of risk. Um, and so these are the types of things where we're talking about trying to find different tools, maybe old tools and techniques, uh, as well as new technological advancements to introduce uh, varying levels of risk to undertaking these offenses in the rural. Yeah, even with, um, with uh, farming uh, equipment, chainsaws, other, other small tools, having some, uh, some uh, marking on that, on that property is fundamentally important. It could just be... Uh, a, a name written in, in texter, it's still going to require a little bit of time. It could yeah. be etched in. I remember back when I was, um, back when I was just a lad and uh, the police had, um, had advertised, uh, I think perhaps in the local paper, or maybe it was via the school that if you went down to the police station, they'd, uh, they'd etch uh, with a old fashioned engraver mm. uh, into your bike. So yeah. that there was some sort of form of identification on your bike. And I remember my dad taking me down there and I was so excited. Uh, the police officer was yeah. doing this on my bike. Um, yeah, that's pretty old school. I mean, there's lots of cutting edge technological marking solutions as well. And yeah, not, not, not terribly common here in Australia, but very much so in the United Kingdom is forensic, uh, forensic water or traceable liquid property marking. Mm. So a couple of the really key brands that people may have heard of smart water and selected DNA are two of the really big um, operations. Uh, and it's applying a, uh, a unique uh, uh, liquid substance to properties, invisible, but uh, putting, it to, uh, putting it on property, which can be uh, detected at a later stage with a UV light. Mm. Um, and you, can, you can look that up. It's, uh, you know, it's you know, fairly sophisticated technology. But that in and of itself is insufficient to deter the crime from... A, a, uh, to prevent the crime or deter it from, yeah. uh, from occurring. It's all about the signage and it's the word of mouth. If you will get caught with this property and you don't know for sure whether it has been marked or not marked, do you want to take the risk? Yeah. 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 Well, there's one, eh? um, yeah. There's a place in, um, uh, in the West Midlands in the, in the UK where mm. uh, they've got uh, entire villages where, Everybody's been given given the stuff or purchased it and uh, and marked all their property. And there's lots of um, um, agricultural settings. So horse tack is mm. um, you know so saddles and all the other equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worth worth a lot of money. And uh, and so uh, marking all that stuff and making sure that it's uh, it's clear to the offender that stuff, property has been marked. It's um it's really quite important. I think we'll call it there. Um, thanks everybody for, for listening. Thanks so much, Alistair, for being on our, our, our first uh, show. Um, we're hoping to do this much more often, having people like Alistair, um, academics, but also practitioners, uh, um, uh, community members, and just talking about issues in rural crime more broadly. So if there's something you'd like to see, don't hesitate to, to email us, rucrim at une.edu.au. Um, and let's have a chat about some, some interesting topics. So 
Thanks again, Alistair. Appreciate your time. Great. And uh, thanks for, thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers.